Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and... Hmm, wait. This is... Is this... Is this right? On this bonus episode of Strange New Worlds, we're talking about the science of the popular video game series, Mass Effect. When I arrived in Seattle about a year ago to start my postdoc, it didn't take long for my colleagues in the University of Washington's astrobiology program to find out what a huge Star Trek fan I was, and that I ran my very own Science of Star Trek podcast. Two of those colleagues, Kim Bott and Rudy Garcia, two of the loveliest nerds that you'll ever meet, told me that they didn't know much about Star Trek, but that they would be more than happy to talk to me about the science of Mass Effect. Now, I've never played Mass Effect. In fact, my video gaming background is pretty dismal. When my friends invite me to go play video games with them, I generally say, sure, if you really need somebody with 10 thumbs to beat up real badly, I'm your guy. But Mass Effect is no ordinary video game, or so they tell me. It's a rich sci-fi universe with depth and nuance, adventure and intrigue, and no small dose of science. So, without further ado, The Science of Mass Effect featuring astrobiologists Kim Bott and Rudy Garcia. Welcome to Strange New Worlds. I'm joined <laughs> by two of my favorite people here at the University of Washington in Seattle, Kim Bott, or Dr. Kim Bott, Aww. and Rudy Garcia. Soon to be doctor. Very soon. Eventually. And we are here to discuss the science of Mass Effect. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's the sound that Rudy makes every time you bring it up. Yeah. Rudy has a, a Mass Effect screen <laughs> that we absolutely adore. Um, but before we get to Mass Effect, I thought we would do a little debrief about the Astrobiology Science Conference, which was held here in Seattle a week before this recording. And we were all in attendance, and you are the first two guests that I'm having on Strange New Worlds post abscicon mm-hmm. So I thought I would ask you what your highlights were from the meeting. Oh, this is going to be like the hardest question. <laughs> I mean, I always like these conferences because they bring everyone together from like different facets of astrobiology. And so I appreciated the exoplanet talks that were very directly related to what I work on, but I also loved learning more about icy moons in our own solar system, um, seeing just how mission ready a Europa lander is, (laughs) if it could just get some funding. so you yeah. mentioned that you worked on you work on exoplanets. So mm-hmm. do you want to say a little bit about what you work on, Kim? Sure. So I work on a technique called polarimetry, which is really just thinking about light as a vector instead of just a scalar. So you're just getting a little bit more information about the light that you're measuring from an exoplanet system than you normally would. And so I study how to apply this technique to determining whether or not a planet is habitable. It might be friendly to life. Very nice. That's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think uh, was the second conference I've gone to was Epsicon, and it was pretty great. I think it was, um, the other one was AAS, and I think it was, I felt like I understood more of what was going on than at AAS, which is a lot bigger. AAS Um, stands for the... Oh, the uh, American Astronomical Society sort of general meeting, um, which has a lot more people and a lot of stuff that I've never really heard of. But ABSICON, or the Astrobiology Science Conference, even though it did have a lot of people, I think it was almost a thousand people, everyone's sort of working on the same sort of thing, which is life, either, you know, the origin of life, how can we detect life, things like that. And so I felt like... I could tune into things here and there and at least understand part of what they were doing. 
But I also met a lot of people who are also first year grad students. So that was nice, like meeting people who are also kind of lost and not really <laughs> sure what's going on all the time, which is super, super good to do, I think. Yeah, it's always awesome to be lost with a bunch of people because then you can all <laughs> celebrate your lostness and, <laughs> and have a good time just learning so many new things for the first time. Rudy, you also um, had some excellent success at AppsIcon. Your poster <laughs> was a finalist for the Student Poster Prize. Yeah. Woo! That's really awesome. Thank yeah. you. Well, I got a lot of help from um, Vicky Meadows and Rory Barnes and um, a few other people helping me just like, you know, take what was a pretty like sad poster um, and really refine it over the course of a week. Like, Mike, you like organized a whole like poster sort of talk session how to make a poster and I think that was really helpful too so it's mm. I just kind of absorbed everything and then kind of spit it out onto the poster <laughs> I guess it worked out <laughs> do, you, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what you spat onto that poster yeah so I um I do research on interior atmosphere interactions so just how does the interior of a planet affect what happens on the atmosphere of a planet um, and the key there is that we can only really observe the atmospheres of planets mostly outside of our solar system but even in our solar system um, and so I looked currently at outgassing, which is how water inside of a planet's mantle kind of gets out into the atmosphere um, and how that water can escape from the atmosphere into space through something called atmospheric escape. Um, and so I sort of just kind of saw how those two kind of worked against each other um, and how, you know, a lot of people think that atmospheric escape causes a planet to lose all of its water. Um, but actually outgassing can replenish some of that water um, and kind of keep a planet, for lack of a better word, hydrated um, <laughs> over a longer period of time than people think they can. So it's good. And it was a very blue poster. I think I had a really core aesthetic. Everything was blue. Nice. Some of my important words were highlighted blue, things like that. Uh -huh. <laughs> and just to be clear, outgassing means like volcanic activity, stuff coming out from the interior of a planet? Yeah, mostly due to volcanism, different types of volcanism, you know, explosive eruptions, just kind of leaky eruptions, like what happens on, uh, on Hawaii, but things like that. Okay, great. So AppsIcon was real fun for all three of us. But our main topic for today is the science behind the amazing video game series Mass Effect, which I have never played. So <laughs> you're gonna really you're gonna territory yeah, here. It's strange new worlds going where no strange new worlds <laughs> has gone before. We are gonna be talking about Mass Effect, which is completely unrelated to Star Trek, but I'll try to find parallels between the two wherever possible. And you two are both expert Mass Effect <laughs> players, right? So I want to ask you, when was the last oh time that you played Mass Effect? I played it a tiny bit last night because I hadn't played it very much before this week and we were talking about doing this. But it came out a while ago, right? Like it came out in 2007? Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. I have the wiki here. Right <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Kim's up to Oh, 2007. Was, 2007 it came out. Did you start playing it right away? No. I had so many people tell me to play this game. I was just like, I don't really like video games. I wish they were more open-ended. I want to be in space. I'm like, I want to play a girl. And people were like, oh, my God. <laughs> There's a game that checks all of those boxes. <laughs> That's really awesome. So Mass Effect was sort of your first foray into gaming? Yeah. That was like my first uh, real bit. Like I played computer games like Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri and mm -hmm. Thief and SimCity when I was younger, but like so real console video games. Okay, yeah, was yeah. my first one. So like a, a a very different genre of game, but then also on a different platform too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the first one that felt like a real video game. Rudy, when was the last time you played Mass Effect? Wow, I uh, probably when I played it, which was six years ago, maybe uh, twenty. Yeah, 2013, maybe 2012 was when I last played it. But I sort of kept up. I don't know, I, I read a lot about it. It was also, that wasn't my first video game, but it was my first game I really played on the um, on the Xbox 360. So before then, all the consoles I had were Nintendo consoles. And most mm -hmm. of the games I had played were Nintendo games. Um, but I, my dad bought one for some reason. I think he was excited that it could be used as a DVD player, which we never used it as one. Um, <laughs> and my friend lent me all his games, and he was like, you got to play the Mass Effect first. Um, and I did, uh, just to humor him, because there are other games I wanted to play more. But then I loaded it, and the music started playing, and like the screen is just this beautiful like world that really sucks you in after the first like 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, I'm going to 
I'm going to keep yeah. going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Okay. So like I said, I have never touched Mass Effect before. So I'm going to ask some really basic questions, um, such as what kind of game is Mass Effect? That's part of the beauty of Mass Effect. <laughs> yeah. You do a lot of different things in this game. So there's maybe like kind of four main scenarios. Sometimes you're like out there, you know, shooting scary aliens. <laughs> <laughs> or like going after the bad guy. It's yeah. like a, sh- a first-person shooter game. And sometimes you're like on your ship, on your spaceship, talking to your crew and trying to bond with them and developing, I guess, tech kind of yeah. in a way. Mostly most, bonding. Yeah, it's mostly, mostly for the, the bonding. Yeah. And then sometimes you're like on planets or on basically space stations and things like that, interacting with other characters and doing little missions. So you're often kind of walking around... And making choices, which this was one of the big appeals for this game, was that it was somewhat open-ended that the choices that you made early on would determine the gameplay later in the game. And that's kind of like true in a limited way. Mm -hmm. But then yet another way that you get to interact is by kind of hopping between different solar systems in our galaxy, different parts of it, and exploring them and scanning for minerals on the planet yeah there's a lot of just exploring sort of mostly empty planets maybe there's like a tiny mining facility or something but mostly especially mass effect one actually just going around the surfaces of these pretty remote planets that might be hazy that might be like a little less gravity than on earth or things like that and that was one of my favorite parts of mass effect one was because all those planets also have like descriptions so when you select a planet there's some snippet like flavor text like a paragraph or two long sort of tying it in to the context of the world as a whole Mm. um which is really cool yeah there's a lot to read if you want to yeah details about every planet like they at least give some specs on it of its gravity and kind of say what kind of world it is and it's for a video game like it's pretty scientific about it it actually shows realistic different types of worlds garden worlds hothouse worlds things like venus ice giants and talks about things like where those planets would form so if there's a giant planet very close to its star they suggest that maybe it was captured or migrated wow and these are like real theories that people have for explaining actual giant planets very close to their stars so it seems like mass effect is so detailed in its exoplanetary science i'm wondering if when you were playing mass effect all those years ago did it sort of resonate with you? Were you already interested in exoplanets or were you inspired by Mass Effect to actually study exoplanets? Where did this fall in terms of the parallels to your own scientific journey? I was already into it. I was into it like as an idea, but I didn't like study it. I hadn't heard the word astrobiology before. I thought, I thought it was like a, like a punchline. Like it, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sounds like one of those things. Um, but I was like pretty into to science at the time, and I think it really like spurred that. I think Curiosity landed around the same time that I was playing Mass Effect. So that was pretty exciting. Um, so like seeing those two both like coming together, and I'm like, wow, all of these things exist. Um, and definitely like in undergrad, doing some of my research on exoplanets, I would like think about these sorts of worlds in terms of Mass Effect. I think the like planet zoo sort of aspect of exoplanet <clears throat> research is kind of parallel to like how Mass Effect defines like a planet zoo. Like there are all these different kinds of planets, different environments or atmospheres, and it's just cool. They're really tuning all those parameter knobs. Yeah. All right, so tell me a little bit about the story behind the game. You said it was a very appealing kind of exploring this world. <laughs> What, what kind of character do you play and who do you interact with and what are the geopolitics or the yeah. astropolitics of this universe? Oh, man. How many hours do we have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like it because it has, like, two stories. There are, like, two stories going on. One is, like, you play as Commander Shepard, who is a character that you completely make. Um, you can decide what they look like um, and things like that. Um, and they're sort of like this like military hero, human military hero. So I guess you don't 100% decide because they can't be an alien. But they're like a human military hero who gets sort of embroiled in this like galactic controversy around these black ops agents called Spectres, who are sort of the right hand of like the galactic council. But they can basically do whatever they want. They're not really within the bounds of galactic law. Mass Effect 1 starts with 
humans think that a specter has gone rogue because that specter attacks a human colony and the council that doesn't currently have humans on it because humans have sort of intruded into galactic civilization only in the past like hundred years the council doesn't think that that's possible but they do make commander shepherd a specter and say if you want to investigate it like do it and that's where it sort of opens up the game where it's it's kind of like a detective thing you're like okay i need to find evidence that this person has gone rogue and like bring it to the council and you get embroiled in these bigger sort of galactic level existential crises yeah that's in the spoiler territory i guess yeah (laughs) we can maybe just say spoiler alert overall i don't know like (laughs) if i'm gonna catch every time one comes up yeah yeah let's just say spoiler alert if you haven't played mass effect and you really care about the story of it pause your podcast Go play Mass Effect. (laughs) (laughs) And then restart this podcast. But Mass Effect has been out there for like a long time. So people like me who just don't know the story of it, it's my fault, right? (laughs) Let's just, uh, yeah, we'll we'll spoil it all. Um, And then what were you going to, what's kind of the second story? I feel like I know what you're talking about, but you can probably explain it much better. Um, The second story is just the story of this galaxy as a whole. There are, something like nine different species that are talked about. There are lots more that just aren't really talked about or mentioned very often. And essentially, humanity discovered, I want to say about 100 years before the story takes place, discovered a an alien artifact on Mars that said, hey, that like one, aliens exist or at least existed, and two, there's this like strange like artifact outside of the orbit of Pluto. And so they go there and they find what's called a mass relay, which is basically a thing that allows you to manipulate mass effect fields, there's the title of the game, that allow you to change the mass of objects and essentially enables faster than light travel Mm -hmm. um, because they like shrink the mass of their ships or something like that. So would this be like, well, I know this came out, the game came out before the discovery of the Higgs field and Higgs boson, but... Could you sort of wave your hands a little bit and say basically what the mass effect field is, is the Higgs field? Well, so the way that they explain it is that they find element zero, right? And it's, so it's this imaginary element. And when you apply a current to it, that creates dark energy. I think that's how they explain it. And that is what produces the mass effect field. Yeah, the the like actual physics of producing the mass effect field is a little hand wavy, yeah, but if you <laughs> but that's like that's the space magic that's like their thing that, and then there's fallout from that and how people are able to not only move in like spaceships but move themselves and yeah. like the kind of technology and healthcare that they have and yeah, like they have like kinetic shields which are basically like mass effect fields that get generated around a person that can like stop like bullets for example because they just change the mass of the bullet or something like that they change the mass of the shield to something really large and then you've got like an immovable object mm. so it's it it works out like if you can just take as your caveat i can change the mass of things for like not a lot of effort then like the rest of the physics kind of makes sense that's mm. awesome yeah yeah i mean it's science fiction, so it, it absolutely yeah. <laughs> has some element of fiction to it. Um, yeah. And then you accept that and you move on, and there's actual real science shockwaves that resonate from that science magic that yeah. is happening. Yeah. Okay, great. So you were telling me that humanity discovered that there is a mass effect thingy yeah. beyond Pluto. Okay, so when when in the timeline, I'm assuming this is all basically in our timeline, in our future. It's about like 2170, I 2170. think. 2170, okay, yeah. cool. So it sort of overlaps with some of, some of the Star Trek stories yeah. too. Okay, so in about 150 years or so in the future, we discover this mass effect thingy. You should tell me the name again so I can stop saying oh, mass, mass relay. Mass relay. Um, and what do we do with that? So we activate it and we like take it and it turns out to connect to another mass relay somewhere else in the galaxy. And we start establishing colonies on these like somewhat habitable planets, habitable but not inhabited by sentient life. And eventually we find more mass relays and activate them. And at some point we activate one mass relay that takes us to another planet. And when we get to that planet, this like other species comes and like sees that we're colonizing this planet and they're like hey you can't do that that's illegal Uh, (laughs) you can't act apparently in galactic civilization you can't activate mass relays because like 1500 years ago someone did that 
and uh, it led to this like uncontacted species invading the galaxy. It was like a hive mind insect race, um, and there was like a huge galactic scale war. So it's now illegal to do that, but humanity didn't know that. But the you know these space cops don't really care, so they like fire upon the galaxy, and they think that that's all we've got. But then we bring in like the whole like humanities like space navy and there's like almost a war and then the other galactic species come in and like negotiate a ceasefire so it's it's an interesting because the game takes place only maybe 80 years after this so it's still like fresh in everyone's mind and there's a lot of interspecies conflict with this species that called the turians who are kind of like they're kind of avian um they're kind of like space romans they're really big on hierarchy and like serving the capital s state so they're kind of like the the space cops. And so there's a lot of like, like our first contact with aliens was like in a, in a war. We call it the first contact war, but they call it the Relay 314 incident. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, yeah. It's like, you know, conflicts. yeah, yeah humans, whatever, you know, like we've seen worse. And then we're just like, oh my God, aliens. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me about in the galactic dynamics, where does humanity fall? Are we part of an alliance with other species like in Star Trek? Or are we like sort of an outcast? Are we just getting our space legs? Like what is yeah, going on? Yeah, so we're just getting our space legs we are very like powerful i guess because a lot of species end up like shortly after discovering faster than light travel like get inducted into the galactic civilization but we had already established like our area of the galaxy as like a human region and so we we have some clout and humans are also just kind of like a more of a like stir up the pot species and so we want more galactic power but we don't quite have representation on the council which is this Three species are represented on the council, the Turians, the Asari, who are like blue space elves, and the Solarians, who are like uh, this amphibious race that kind of look like your stereotypical gray alien, um, but a little more lizard-like, and they're really smart. So they're sort of the like intelligence science aspect you, of the council. Did you just call the Asari blue space elves? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're really old, they're very pretentious. Yeah, um. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I just took them. They're like, I don't know. Do they have the... pointy ears? No. Oh, okay. Not really. No, they have like tendril things coming off of their head, like a hard, it's meant to be hard, but it kind of looks like a squid's yeah. tendril okay. coming off of their head. But they're meant to be like, I read them as being like, you know, studious, dedicated people <laughs> and like widely liked. Like, so the other thing in this world is that like supposedly all species pretty much are like attracted to a sorry like yeah. there's something about them that's attractive to everyone and that they can mate with any other species like they're not it doesn't matter what kind of biology any other species has they can essentially reproduce with them and it's like encouraged in a sorry culture to mate with non-asaris because yeah. it like diversifies the like asari dna so it's like an interesting yeah. sort of like children whose parents were both asari are like discriminated against because it's like you can't do that or like you can do that but like it doesn't you know it doesn't lead to like betterment for all asari yeah. which is interesting that's fascinating but yeah. then there's also like there's still like space racism based on like who an asari mates with like they mate with a human, cool. They mate with a Turian, cool. But if they mate with like a Krogan, who's like this like more like warlike, aggressive, mm. I guess like kind of like space Klingons, maybe <laughs> space Klingons or just Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> Klingons if they nuked their own planet, Yikes. hundreds of times. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then their their children are seen as also like somewhat undesirable. Okay, well, thank you for catching yeah. me up on all of the <laughs> politics and the nations and the, and the species that are represented in Mass Effect. So let's talk about maybe your favorite astrobiological aspect of Mass Effect. Like, do you have a favorite species or a favorite <laughs> planet from which a species is evolved? I think the story of the Hanar and... Sorry, now that I'm like being recorded, I can't remember what anything is called, and the draw <laughs> is interesting. So the Hanar are these big stupid jellyfish, these like <laughs> giant space jellyfish things that just have like very different views 
and biology, I guess, from us. And so they have been uplifted by kind of like the last, so maybe this is like a whole other thing that we need yeah. to think about Mass Effect. So there's maybe like a third aspect to the story of this kind of cyclic thing. So like mad spoiler alerts coming up. Yeah. <laughs> um, of just all intelligent species in the galaxy being wiped out. So once you reach kind of like a certain intelligence threshold, something comes and wipes everything out. And the last yeah. like really dominant, I guess, intelligent species... I can't remember the name. The Protheans. The Protheans. Yeah. <laughs> so the Protheans were the people who left the ruins on Mars. So that was while they were observing Earth and I think uplifting humans on yeah, Earth. Yeah, because 50,000 years ago is like within human like, history. Yeah, yeah, I guess Even that, if it's that's unwritten a, history. It's, it's like still. pretty recent. To... So, so uplifting humans means... So the Hanar, these big stupid jellyfish were also uplifted by the protheans when the protheans were a galactic species before the protheans were wiped out and they describe it as the protheans teaching them language they were maybe i think they talk a little bit about genetics or some, yeah, some genetic it's influence like it's well. like a mix of like like myth and and like actual history yeah know, like, yeah so from the that viewpoint kind of, of the Hanar, it's just that they're taught language, but there's probably some like more scientific things that the Protheans are doing to like accelerate the evolution of intelligence in whatever chosen species, they potential species they find. And so they chose Earth. They had a base on Mars. They chose Earth, accelerated our development. This is sort of getting into like an ancient aliens kind of story. Yeah, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> I just want to make it clear that although it's a really intriguing idea that aliens visited Earth in the distant past, appearing to our ancestors perhaps as godlike figures due to their incomprehensibly advanced technology, there is, to date, no well-accepted or robust scientific evidence to support the so-called ancient alien theories. It's really cool, too, because in Mass Effect 1, everyone knows about the Protheans in this galaxy. But um, it turns out in Mass Effect 3, also big spoiler alerts, <laughs> turns out the Protheans are just bad guys. Like, they're yeah. they're all really, like, like you learn about their history more, and they were all, they were this, like, really bloodthirsty, like, empire. Like, yeah. they aren't, like, so it's an interesting contrast, because in Mass Effect 1, like, you meet people who are, like, historians, and they, like, vaunt, they're like, oh, the Protheans must have been such a, like, an enlightened, like, yeah. species. Yeah, like one of your best friends is just obsessed with them. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But then Mass Effect 3, it's like, nah, they were just uh they were just uh pretty bad. Alright, so you were talking about the Hanar? Yeah, so then the Hanar have also been uplifted by the Protheans. And then when they become interstellar, I believe one of their nearest neighbors are the Drell and the Drell. I can't remember what is wrong with their... There's they're, they're something wrong with their planet. Their planet is really dry, but right. then something bad happens on... I think there's either like... Is it like a climatic like yeah, climate thing? Yeah, I think there's a climate apocalypse that happens. Yeah. And so a few of them are saved and taken to the planet that the Hanar are from, and the, they kind of create this like symbiotic culture with the Hanar. So I think that's maybe my favorite, which like neither of those species are necessarily my favorite, but I just think that's one of the more interesting stories. Because of this symbiotic nature that they end up adopting. Yeah, so the Drell end up kind of like working for them. Um, so the Hanar have like a lot of rules. They find a lot of things offensive and the Drell end up kind of working as like hitmen for them, I guess. Yeah. Like they're kind of, yeah, strong arm because the jellyfish obviously don't have strong arms. And then the drill, like... <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Like, but how do they even live together? What what are the drow, actually? Are they also seafaring creatures? No, they're from a dry planet, as you said. Yeah. They're kind of, I mean, they kind of look like frog things. But yeah, they look green. They look green. aquatic. They're kind of like chinchillas. In that, like, you what? can't... You can, they come from a really dry place, and you can't really get them wet. And, like, the sad <laughs> thing about the Hanar rescuing them is the Hanar are from, like, an ocean world. And so Drell have this, like, disease because, like, they just, oh, yeah. the longer they live, the more, like, water accumulates in their lungs just because, you know, that's how they do. And 
it like causes them to die at the age of like 40 or 50 unless they live in like a really good climate controlled environment. Mm. That's really amazing. So so the Hanar are from a water world. I'm taking that to mean they live on a planet with no dry land. It's just completely covered in ocean? Yeah, ocean covered. Like Camino in Star Wars. What's your favorite planet? Your favorite species? I like the guest. <laughs> The Geth, that's a cool one. Oh, that's an even cooler story. <laughs> okay, tell me about the Geth. So the Geth is one of the major... Mass Effect has a lot of like major conflicts that occur throughout the whole, like, all three of the games. And the Geth-Korian conflict is like a really big one. So like 300 years ago, the Korians lived on this planet um, that was also kind of dry, kind of rocky. But the Korians, like, you know, they were just like standard people or whatever, but they um, they ended up developing this like artificial intelligence which they called the geth which in korean language means like servant of the people or something so already they don't view these ais as like equals they view them as like tools um and they designed the geth such that the more geth you have in one place the like smarter they get so they have a networked intelligence so if mm -hmm. you have one geth like it'll follow orders but it won't really do anything but if you have like a ton of geth they can like coordinate amongst themselves and like run an entire farm or factory or something like that eventually the geth start thinking like are they alive or like are they sentient and so one of the geth asks like what the quarry it works for like does this unit have a soul and that really sparks a whole debate on the planet of whether the geth are like a sentient species the way that the Koreans are and ultimately, it's your classic kind of people don't like this, and so there's a there's a civil war between the Koreans and the Geth. Although some Koreans are on the side of the Geth, so you know not all Koreans are bad. <laughs> so I'm getting sort of like <laughs> Battlestar Galactica vibes. Yeah. Here. Okay. Very very similar. Um, so they develop them, and then the Geth win the civil war, um, and basically like chase the Koreans off the planet. Mm -hmm. And the Geth don't follow the Koreans, which is like, that's nice. You know, they're not going to kill all of the Koreans. <laughs> but ever since then, the Koreans live on ships. They live on spaceships. Like, they don't have a homeworld anymore. And so there's this huge fleet of Korean ships called the Migrant Fleet, which is just like every Korean ship ever. Um, and they've been living in this, like, fleet for like 300 years. And so because of that, Koreans are really, really good at engineering. And they also have really poor immune systems. So they have to wear these like vacuum pressure suits everywhere. And that suit like is what they spend basically their entire life in. That's really interesting. So let me get this right. So they left their planet because the AI that they created took over. Yeah. And now they just live on ships. But because ships don't have fully flourishing microbiomes, they're super susceptible to encountering any kind of microbe or virus from another ship or another species or another planet. So they encase themselves in spacesuits for their entire lives. Yeah. Wow. Do you think something like that might happen if and when humans decide to go and live permanently, say, on the International Space Station or create some kind of living space on the moon or Mars? Yeah, so I, I, I think what you were saying before is true that you'd have to create this kind of robust microbiome of things that are friendly to humans to compete with whatever might tag along. I saw some headline the other day, and I can't remember where it's from, so I don't know if it's like real news or not, <laughs> but uh, of there be being careful. issues with fungi in long-term space flight, like on the space station and things like that. So maybe like certain pathogens, like even if viruses don't do particularly well in yeah. space, there might be other things to worry about that could flourish. Plus who knows what space does to like our micro, our gut things. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. that. I feel like that's a pretty new area of science, the like interplay between like humans, like our biology our health and sometimes our mental health too with yeah. like all the things that live in our tummies for mm -hmm. sure yeah that's something that we still are just beginning to understand for normal human beings here on earth and yeah. when we launch them into space <laughs> yeah who knows what microgravity or whatever else might do kim you also had some notes about ai yeah so ai i believe like sentient or sapient ai is banned in this universe along with gmos rules and like exceptions like they're the drill have genetic i don't know why i know so much about the drill they're like, they're like one of my least favorites 
speeds. <laughs> but they have like uh, genetically engineered their eyes so that they can see the like luminescent communication from the big stupid jellyfish from the hammer. Because <laughs> I guess they they mostly communicate in this way, and so the jellyfish genetically engineered their eyes. Even though GMOs for some reason are banned in this universe, there are exceptions to it. Um, Right, so AI is also banned. So this is sort of like a story point for the Geth and also for the development of one of the main characters, Edie. I guess it's sort of this scandalous thing, the scandalous storyline that you're realizing that the AI on your ship that's gifted to you by people who resuscitate you after your, spoiler alert, character is killed. <laughs> like they resuscitate Captain Shepard back to life and like give them back their spaceship, like rebuild the spaceship that was destroyed before. They include with that characters that kind of babysit you and this AI called Edie. And they just, I think at first talk about it like, oh, it's just some, like, it's one of the okay AIs. Like you can have kind of like, just more advanced versions of what we have today where, you know, these things aren't really sapient or sentient. They're not self-aware or anything like that. They're not like a true intelligence. They're just like very capable algorithms. It's like not all of these, like at least for the AI ban, and I assume it's probably true with the genetic engineering ban, it's not like a binary kind of thing. Mm. It's like a each species sort of has its own level of comfort with certain things. So like the Koreans are inherently distrustful of not just artificial intelligences, but virtual intelligences, which are closer to what we right. would call AI yeah. right now, um, because they're the ones who built the Geth. But like humans don't really care that much, and because and we're new to the council, so we don't have the sort of you know cultural factor. So humans are the ones who like built Edie, which is like which some species would consider like too dangerously close to an actual AI. So I think genetic engineering or like biological engineering is kind of similar that like some species are like, eh, we'll do it. And some species are like, we cannot do that. Yeah. And sort of the way that you view these sapient or sentient AI and, you know, whether or not you view them as life, as something worth protecting or giving rights to is a recurring theme throughout this. Big spoiler at the end. <laughs> at the end of this, there's this big decision that you have to make um, for kind of like your ending for the story. And the information that you're given is that the reason that there's this cyclic destruction of all intelligent life within the galaxy is because there's this entity that does this and they're doing it because the artificial intelligence that intelligent life creates inevitably destroys it. And they, so they call that chaos and they just want to stop the chaos. And so they just skim the top periodically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So there is this next level of being out there that is monitoring all these galaxies for when artificial intelligence has the capability of basically wiping out biologically intelligent beings and then mm. just shut it all down. They're just like, no more intelligence here. But the yeah. biggest irony is that what is doing that, like what is monitoring art, artificial intelligence? Yeah. <laughs> so th th there's another artificial intelligence <laughs> that is scared that an artificial intelligence that is created by a biological intelligence will overtake it, so it shuts it down. No, no. No, no it's not afraid for itself. Th they were developed by organic. So it's sy the, the synthetics and organics is like what the binary is. Okay. And so way back in the day, this organic species developed this synthetic life and like as protectors. And eventually the synthetic life was like, well, the best way to protect organics is to kill all of the organics because inevitably they will develop like synthetics that will kill them. And so they, they do exactly what Kim said. They like swipe off the top every so often. <laughs> and it's funny because it's like they themselves are synthetics killing organics. So it's yeah. like a weird. Yeah, there's a little bit of a bias there. Yeah. That's someone, crazy. someone flipped a bit where they shouldn't have. I'm really intrigued by this. And so I just need to ask do you end up confronting this yeah. overarching synthetic? Yeah. At the, like the climax of Mass Effect 3 or something? Or... Yeah. yeah. And, and then you defeat it or something? Ooh, no, you <laughs> wish, though. <laughs> 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 I think so this was like one of the most 
like one of the hottest points for this game series is that a lot of people really hate the ending because it I, I can kind of understand like it feel well the original version just wasn't maybe yeah. as developed as it should have been but even with the patches I think people feel like you know I have this decision tree I've made all these decisions and I want my unique ending and they just kind of like wipe all those decisions out and although you have a huge battle at the end like facing that final boss the thing that determines you know who lives and dies really uh, among your friends is just talking to this entity them telling you why they're doing this and then saying okay you have three choices <laughs> you can either um, destroy all synthetic life which includes the geth which includes the geth and will probably kill you because at this point you're also partially synthetic from being brought back to life oh you can merge, which is sort of like, what if we combined this AI technology with DNA? I don't like entirely understand. Like everyone's DNA becomes the same or you something? You become kind of, yeah, everyone is kind of a little, like, is simultaneously synthetic and... Organic. Organic. And they all, they all glow green a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it makes you magically glow green if you choose that one. Um, but that will also kill you, I guess, because you have to... Oh, you sacrifice yourself as the like. Oh, as like the extra energy the or something for the to DNA do it, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. and right. then um, the third option is that you control the artificial intelligence, but that means that you basically have to die because you're going to like no longer, you know, live in your corporeal form. So like you can still see, you'll be like a god, you know, and see everything that's going on. But your friends won't know you're there. Yeah. You won't be able to live your human life anymore. You don't have to have beers in space New York anymore. No. <laughs> it's a real, it's a fun part of the game. Yeah. So, you know, all of this banning of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence coming back to sort of smite its uh, biological creators or its organic creators, the synthetics versus the organics, and then also this genetic modification of organics sort of reminds me of the present day, like where we are right now with mm. all of this emerging technology to actually do genetic engineering with CRISPR, et cetera, and to actually create artificial intelligence. You know, we're kind of on the cusp of that right now. Yeah. And the way you described the different nation states in Mass Effect having their own sorts of rules for these things is probably going to be reflective of what's going to happen here on Earth with different governments and corporations deciding what they want to push, how far they want to go, and how much they want to regulate these things. And so I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the parallels between this aspect of the Mass Effect game and where we are right now in society. I think what you were just touching on, that there's a lot of politics that will come into play and sort of, you know, international pressures is kind of the main point at least for a parallel that i see in mass effect one interesting thing that mass effect brings up that is only somewhat that i only see a little bit in like our current world is the cultural pressure the like the koreans don't make ai even like a like radical out there korean hates the korean man will not make an ai because it's just so ingrained in like the culture and i don't think that's necessarily true in the current world because well one there's no like universal culture but also it's there's not the same level of like social pressure yeah. to not do the thing which i think is interesting especially with something like like cloning a human right like that only takes like a group of people to do so if you have like a group of people to do it you know then that group of people might do it right i guess this sort of speaks to the kind of universal fallacy of a lot of science fiction where it sort of places a group of people or a culture and paints it as a very like monolithic type yes. of society yeah. Yeah. and um as as you were saying like there can definitely be outliers in certain societies and mm -hmm. there isn't going to be this universal cultural code that will prohibit everybody from doing something so we've talked a lot about Mass Effect's story, like you've, you've <laughs> yes. definitely filled me in on all of the big story arcs and the dynamics between these different species. And there's been a lot of like scientific themes that have run throughout, like almost as if the story was the organics and, and the science was the synthetics that sort of are <laughs> a, a part of you now. But I was wondering if there are any scientific highlights from Mass Effect that we haven't yet brought up that we want to talk about. 
I guess regarding like a couple of things we've already brought up, you were talking about monolithic societies, and I think that that's something that Mass Effect does fairly well to show a little bit more diversity. But they also do that with the planets. So I was mentioning before that they get into at least a little bit into how planets form. They also have habitable zones around stars. So, you know, it's kind of the inner midway out ones that tend to be garden worlds. They sometimes at least have habitable areas within the planet itself. So maybe the poles are not habitable or maybe only the poles on a very hot planet are habitable. Um, Like on Ilium, this planet, um, it's a little bit too hot around the equator. So either you have to live in these high skyscrapers that get you to, I guess, a part of the atmosphere that is cooler. Um, yeah. wow. <laughs> it depends on your pressure temperature. That's, that's what we're, <laughs> we're going to have to do here on Earth pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> or you have to live at the poles. Okay. Yeah. But they also, they have this galactic habitable zone. So you don't really see inhabited worlds near the center of our galaxy, which is probably true in our own galaxy because it's just too active there there's too much going on too many stars blowing up and shit like that (laughs) (laughs) but that's that's like probably true right that's That's what i mean yeah 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 Yeah. that's really awesome yeah so it's kind of cool like i don't know who was doing the science consulting but they did a pretty decent job yeah i learned recently like yesterday that the turian home planet has not a lot of metal in its core which means that it doesn't have a strong magnetic field so all life on this planet has evolved like a somewhat like uv reflective exoskeleton which is kind of interesting i don't know if that's like biologically real but i mean (laughs) like you know that shows that they actually thought about like magnetic field impacts on habitability and like being close to a somewhat active star so the magnetic field though doesn't impact the amount of uv radiation Mm. it will impact the charged particle oh right so do you think that was a like a good idea but a slight mistake on the part of the writers or I think me saying UV was the slight mistake. <laughs> but I do think it um, it might have been a small mistake on the writers too, because I think people get confused as to what magnetic fields protect us from. Yeah, I really like this aspect of showing that a single planet can have all sorts of different environments and biomes, as we know living here on Earth. But I think when we look out at the planets in our solar system, because none of them is really like Earth, mm-hmm. we look at Mars and we're like, oh, it's rusty and red. And then when science fiction authors decide to create their own planets that are not Earth, they're like, oh, Vulcan. Vulcan is going to be a rusty red planet. Yeah. And, you know, it rains on Ferenginar. This is a planet from Star Trek. It just mm-hmm. rains all the time, no matter where you are. It's just <laughs> yeah. raining, raining, raining. Yeah. And I really like this idea from Mass Effect to say, look, if you have a, a very habitable world it may not be habitable everywhere on that world Mm -hmm. and if it's inhabited then there's going to be feedbacks between the climate and the biology that will change things on a very local scale and so that's a really awesome aspect yeah i don't know that they do that consistently but they definitely think about it here and there yeah (laughs) which is impressive (laughs) right and then the only other science thing that i find extremely interesting (laughs) is the chirality thing So you have the Turians, the kind of space police (laughs) militant people, and the Quarians, so the people who created the Geth and now are kind of floating through space uh, nomadically. They both have reversed chirality from what humans and Asari and I think most other alien species have. So chirality is basically the way that molecules twist so a molecule can have a handedness right you can look at your left hand and your right hand and see that no matter how you flip your right hand it is never your left hand it's like a mirror image but it can't superimpose you're making my wrists hurt right but i can't (laughs) we're all sitting here like flipping our hands over like i know i can do it there's got to be a way but you can't like it's a 3d thing that can't be transmuted into the other 3D thing. There's a handedness to it or a chirality to it. And molecules are the same way. Our DNA, all life on Earth, the DNA twists the same way. Proteins all twist the same way. I think in the other direction, amino acids and things like that. And that in astronomy and astrobiology is thought to be a biosignature, one of the most basic ways or most universal agnostic ways that you could determine whether or not something is alive by looking at whether or not the molecules all tend to twist the same way. Because that suggests that you have molecules that, first of all, are complex and contain a lot of information. 
And second of all, that since they're all shaped the same way, all twisting the same way, that they can interact with each other in a reliable, consistent way. So in Mass Effect, the DNA of these Quarians and these Turians are twisted the opposite way to how humans' DNA or like our equivalent of DNA is twisted in the way that Asari and other life forms' DNA is twisted. So there's this interesting element to the gameplay where you kind of maybe have to think about having food that these other species can eat. Uh, and they say that they blame this on the chirality, that they can only eat certain things. Or I'm trying to think of like another good example of how this actually comes up in the story. I would think that it would come up with like... Romancing. Romancing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to be... Not in the game, you don't have to be careful, but it's talked about. If you romance a Turian or a Quarian, right. the like, ship's doctor is like, be careful. Yeah, no, that <laughs> happens in the game, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That's, well, not the ship's doctor, but... Morden. Morden, yeah, kind of. At least, but I, I think he's just teasing you. He's like, ah, it's fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you, maybe you can't procreate, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's like this element in the game. And I think that it's interesting that the food especially is treated like poison. Like it's this dangerous thing if you, you know, mix chiralities. Because in reality, there are some examples of things that are very dangerous when the chirality is flipped and there are other things that are perfectly fine so an example of something that's perfectly fine is glucose so normally i think we have right-handed glucose that we normally eat and that provides us with energy it tastes sweet and then there's left-handed glucose that's the opposite chirality the opposite handedness and if we eat that it doesn't actually poison us it just can't be broken down for energy. So we can't use it for energy, but it still tastes sweet. So like that part of the molecule still interacts with us well. But our body just, you know, the molecules in our body that we use to digest and metabolize things can't really interact with it. So it just passes through us. It's completely harmless. So is this what they make artificial sugars out of? It's, so that's an example of an artificial sweetener. Apparently its manufacture is kind of expensive compared to other artificial sweeteners. So it's not a super popular one, but it's a viable one. But there are examples of things that have been dangerous. So I guess when people were originally synthesizing this drug, thalidomide, how did you say it's pronounced, Rudy? Uh, I think it's thalidomide. Th thalidomide? Yeah, sorry. I don't, I don't know the name, but I've heard this story before. That when they were originally making this drug, that they just didn't really pay attention to the chirality of the drug. They, oh. they were just sort of synthesizing it and were like, whatever, all of it is good. Don't worry about the handedness of it. And it turned out, unfortunately, especially because it was being used to treat morning sickness in pregnant women, that it causes birth defects. And so that drug was either withdrawn or banned until people figured out that it was just the chirality. And as long as you ensure that there's just the one, I can't remember which one it is, that there's the one chirality of it that reacts well with our bodies, that that's perfectly fine and we can use it. So I guess it is still used, maybe not for morning sickness, but for other medical uses today. But they're just very careful about manufacturing it. That is really cool. I love I that cool. science tidbit. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that we can only eat or use the types of amino acids and the types of sugars mm -hmm. that are the same chirality or handedness that we build our own bodies out of. And luckily for us, we eat other living beings, <laughs> you know, <laughs> usually dead, um, that come from our own planet and use the same chirality of amino acids and sugars and whatnot. So we do get the right ones. Mm -hmm. But synthetically, you know, if you're not careful, you might accidentally twist it the wrong way mm -hmm. and uh, do harm to yourself. Yeah, so sometimes it's dangerous, but sometimes it's fine, like the flipped chirality of the sugar. It's not going to harm us anyway. And Kim, this is especially exciting for you because chirality has a connection to your actual research. It does. Thanks for that awesome segue. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even plan that one. <laughs> so chirality, this twistedness to molecules, is something that you could potentially detect with polarized light. So the twistedness of those molecules, their handedness, twists the light that reflects off of them, that interacts with them. So it produces light that has a handedness. So I was saying you can think of polarized light as measuring it as a vector instead of just as a scalar. The vectorized part is looking at how the electric field oscillates. 
So how you've heard of this idea that it's an electromagnetic field, how that electric field wiggles. Does it go side to side, up and down, kind of slanted? That's what we're measuring is how that electric field oscillates. If it's interacted with these chiral molecules, it will go in a corkscrew fashion. And that is also something we can measure. It's a really small signal though, so we would probably need to go send like a, a lander or something to an icy moon to see if we could detect this chirality, this trend in the molecules being all twisted the same way using polarized light, but that is an application for polarimetry. That is fantastic, awesome. So looking at the corkscrew nature of the wiggling of the electromagnetic fields of light, yeah could tell you about the way that those molecules that are scattering that light are twisted yeah. themselves, their handedness. And then if you see all of the same handedness, then mm -hmm. you're probably looking at life rather than an abiotic soup of organics. Exactly. Wow, my mind is just blown. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for summarizing that. <laughs> Thank you, Mass Effect, and thank you, Kim. Right? <laughs> awesome, awesome scientific um, connection to, to astrobiology and to the real search for life out there. Well, I think this has been a super fun and educational, especially for me, discussion because I went into this knowing basically nothing about Mass Effect. I didn't even know why it was called Mass Effect, <laughs> but I got that explanation. I know where humanity is and the near future, I guess, you know, 150, 200 years in the future, and what we're up to in this galaxy and like the different politics around scientific innovations that are probably in our own near future, yeah. genetic engineering and artificial intelligence. And I just find it so fascinating, this story about how organics like us are building machines that can actually rebel against us and perhaps <laughs> take over us or try to protect us in a very kind of twisted way. Mm. And then we've got all this great scientific connection to our own endeavors to find <laughs> life out there. So yeah. thank you so much for joining me on Strange thank New World. Thank you for having us on. It's been a wonderful time and continue playing Mass Effect. And <laughs> if you ever want to come back with more stories about how Mass Effect relates to science, you're more than welcome to join me again. Or if you want to talk about your actual scientific research. <laughs> I play games. I hope you had fun learning about the science and lore of Mass Effect with me, Kim Bott, and Rudy Garcia. Thanks again to Kim and Rudy for suggesting the idea of doing a podcast episode about the science of Mass Effect. You can tweet your suggestions for future bonus episodes of Strange New Worlds to me at MikeY. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. And although Rudy's not on Twitter, you should definitely follow Kimbot at HumanBot. That's bot with two Ts. I'll be back soon with more regular Science of Star Trek content, including an episode on the science of wine in honor of the new Star Trek Picard trailers. And I'll be at STLV this year, the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, handing out free Strange New World stickers to anyone who wants one. So come find me, I'd love to meet you and chat. Until then, see you out there. talk about the sound thing so you have the like the sound from the yeah yeah <laughs> you're gonna need to fill me in here because i don't know what the reaper i couldn't think of the word reaper okay so so the baddies okay so every time the baddies are
brought up where you see the baddies, there's a <laughs> noise. It's kind of like an Inception noise. It's a little bit like an Inception noise. Apparently it was made with a trash can, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, So, but you hear that consistently. So every time you catch up with them, they just burst into flames and you hear this <laughs> noise. And so there's this conditioning, which I just think is like, as far as game development, this is a more meta issue. But I just thought that that was really brilliant that you kind of like consistently get this over and over again so that you kind of like shudder whenever you hear the the reaper noises like a pavlovian response or you told me the right word for it really operant conditioning (laughs) (laughs) um that 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 they actually do that to the player to me that was very interesting 